I want you to open your Bible just briefly tonight to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 21, those two places. Now, last Wednesday night, I spoke about the deliverance of true faith. And I think I said at the beginning that not everything that people call faith really is faith. I mean, people think if they confess the Bible, if they say what God says, it means they have faith. Well, anybody can confess the Bible. Anybody can quote or repeat what the Bible says. That doesn't mean you believe it. You can study it the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you believe it. It may mean you're very familiar with it and you're very intelligent about facts and things in the Bible. But true faith is more than just the gathering in of facts and knowledge. True faith always will do something. It'll always bring results. It's not most of the time. It's an always thing. And we looked at the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, we found that Daniel was thrown into a lion's den because of his conviction. He had a conviction about his relationship with God that he wouldn't compromise with anybody. He got put in the lion's den for it. But the Bible tells us that Daniel was delivered from the lion's den. And we all have or will have or have had a so-called lion's den experience in our life. It may not be as bad as what Daniel was in where your life is in peril. It probably could be. It could be a money thing. It could be a lot of different things that's a lion's den. You don't know what to do. And what's facing you, if something doesn't happen, what's facing you is, is disaster. That's what he faced. He was about to die. I mean, nobody, I guess, nobody had ever been put into a lion's den who could get out of a lion's den alive. I mean, it was certain death. There was no way to get out of the situation. If you went in that, you're done. And yet, when they put Daniel in the lion's den, he came out. And you know why he came out? The Bible says he came out. He was spared from the death of those lions because the Bible said he believed God. And from that came what I call the title, the deliverance of true faith, because when true faith is fixed in our life, when it's there, the real deal, the true faith, the faith of the heart, when it's there, you get results. That's the way it should be, and that's what God wants us to know. Now, tonight I want to talk about the consequence of true faith. Consequence means the result or the effect or the outcome or the conclusion. The consequence of is this. And in that way, I'd like to say the consequence, the results, the outcome of true faith is, and the answer is, whatever God has promised. Now, there's lots of Christians who live below the level that God has promised. They do not enjoy all the benefits that God has told us. We've been hearing about them, preaching about them for years and years and years. Nevertheless, there's a lot of people who do not enjoy those benefits. They are not partaking of all these wonderful promises. And it's almost like, will it ever work? How can it work? When will we ever see these things work? And to me, it's a faith problem. It's either a timing of God's will or it's a faith problem. I'd like to talk about that tonight. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 23, you're familiar with this verse. It says in that verse, If thou canst believe, all things are possible. Possible to whom? To those who believe. We know that with God, nothing is impossible. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the way it's supposed to be. Would you agree to that? That's the way it should be. And he said to that man in Mark chapter 9, whose son was having a serious physical problem at the time, the Greek says, if I can believe, if you can believe, all things are possible. There is nothing outside of the realm of a human experience that cannot be experienced if you believe. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above what you ask. And you could ask God to do a lot of things in your life. 
You could sincerely plead or ask God to do that. He can do more than that. You could ask for a better used car. He'll give you a new one. He can because he's able to. You could ask for relief from some situation. He can deliver you from the situation because he's God. And that's the way he wants us to know him so that we don't approach him trying to earn his favor. But we come into his presence as we said, Sonny, just loving him. He's just here because I want a fellowship with you. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But Matthew 21 and verse 21 and 22, using the word believe again, because he said all things are possible to those who believe. He said, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. I believe Jesus chose two things that had never been done, that had never been written about being done, had never been seen or observed being done, a mountain lifting itself up off the face of the earth and traveling across the country into the sea, wherever the distance the sea was. Now, nobody had ever heard of such a thing. I believe Jesus chose such a thing to stretch our faith out. For he used that in a tree being taken up by the roots. Just, I can't even tell you what a tree like that would look like. But he says, if you just pick it up, it came right up out of the ground and it went across like the mountain into the ocean or into the sea. Now, that's what Jesus used to quicken us, or that's what Jesus used to challenge us. You see, we as Christians, feeling denied these blessings for so many years, we can begin to draw back a little bit from the Lord and sort of treat this with, uh, well, he could, he might, but I, I don't think he will because we've never seen it. We've never had any of these experiences. I mean, who's ever had one of these kind of experiences? You know, a healing of the eye or a raising from the dead or something. I mean, but Jesus said, again, in that 21st verse, he says, if you have faith and doubt not. Now, would you agree with me the problem with a lot of people is doubt? Let's call it uncertainty. It's not a question of could God, God can do. I mean, even the gravest doubter would say God can. God is able because he can't deny what the Bible says about what God has done, unless he's an atheist. You can't deny that miracles galore have already been done. You couldn't read even in the Old Testament. The dead were raised there. The sun went backwards. Miracles that are incredible. And in the New Testament, how could you read like the book of Acts? without coming to the conclusion that God's people are in miracle land all the time. And yet, in this age we're in, right at the end of the time, right in the last days, when the Bible describes the church as slumbering, somehow we've become lethargic and dull of hearing. We're just overloaded, maybe, with the gospel and church. We've come to just kind of take for granted everything that's said and yeah, yeah, I, I'm sure all that's true. And yet never really believe it's going to happen. See, with doubt, there's always uncertainty. There's the question of, I know he could, I wonder if he will, even though he said he would. All he requires is faith. That's all he asks is faith. And a lot of times what we call faith is not what God calls faith. Because the person says, I really want this to happen. Well, that doesn't mean you believe it's going to happen. It means you really want it to happen. When you have faith for something, the issue of what you want and what you desire is settled. When faith is present, you're not trying to get it anymore because you believe you've got it. And that's the hard part. We quoted last week, Mark eleven twenty four: What things soever you desire. Remember that? We've been hearing it for years. He said, when you pray, believe. Believe that you have received it, what you asked for. Believe you've got it. Believe you've received it. And you'll get it. But you've got to believe 
Before you see it, before you feel it, before the reality of its existence come to pass, you've got to believe you have it. And for most people in the church, most Christians, at this stage right now, where God isn't done with us. That's just too hard to do. There's been too many disappointments. Too many people have died. Too many people didn't get well. Too many families broke up. Too many people lost this or lost that. It's just, just hard in light of what we've seen happen to believe that God will do what we've never seen happen. And so there's this element of doubt, this uncertainty that's lodged itself in hearts like ours. You know, ours editorially and people that listen to the word a lot. And there's a problem with us relating to God with faith because we know he's there. We know he could. We've heard the Bible. Man, we've heard it for years, but man, I still struggle. I mean, I just seem like I'm struggling all the time. I just can't get over the hump. Well, Jesus said, he said, if you have faith, if you know what it is in the first place, and if you have it and you don't doubt, you can tell a tree or a mountain to hit the road and go in the ocean and it'll obey you. What things ever you desire, again, in Mark 11, when you pray, believe you've got it. Jesus said, when you pray, believe you've got it, and you'll get it. And the hard part is when faith is evident, faith acts like what God said is true. And so you're required to live as though what you prayed for, you have it. And you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't touch it. Checkbook still says what it says. Relationship still says what it says. The problem still says what it says. It just stares you in the face and laughs at your faith. And yet God says, I want you to act like not only that I heard you, because if we know that God hears us, if you ask anything according to his will, and you know he heard you, then he said, then you know you have it. He didn't say, you know, you see it or feel it or taste it or touch it or smell it or hear it. He says, you know, you have it. Wow, that's what faith is. Faith is, you know, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you know it is? Because the Bible says it. Yeah, I know the Bible says it, but how do you know it is? Because I believe it. Is there any evidence that you believe that? I hope by my life. I hope the way I live is evidence of the fact that if my name is in that book, there is a required way to live. I will do what the Bible says. That's why he left us on this earth to demonstrate that we really are genuine believers. We are God's people, saved. We live like we are. We don't want always to live like we are, but we do. We make those kind of choices because faith will do that. But back to that verse again, he said, all things, verse 22, all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So I ask you the question, first of all, tonight, what can I believe? Now, you think of the things tonight that you would like to see change in your life. Think of it. A child, your husband, your wife, a debt, maybe another kind of a social problem, maybe with a neighbor or with a parent or an in-law. It's just annoying, agitating things. What is it? What can I believe? Can I believe anything I want to believe? Can I just think up something to believe? No, sir. My limits when it comes to believing, how far I can stretch myself is determined by God. There's no such thing as faith beyond the will of God. I cannot expect God to do something for me that is not his will, even though he said what things soever you desire. Even that verse implies I have a relationship with God, whereas I'm inspired as to what I'm going to believe. It came from God, and he's going to bring it to pass. You know, folks that often say, well, if you have so much faith, why don't you go down to the hospital then and empty all the rooms in the hospital? Turn to John chapter 5 and verse 30, and I'll tell you why you can't. I'll tell you why I can't. This is what Jesus said. I know what Jesus said because it's in red letters. Well, ha-ha anyway. But anyway, John 5, 30. Jesus said, I can of mine own self do what? Nothing. 
Now, that doesn't sound right. But it's true. He said in the Bible, he said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of my heavenly Father. And he said in, in John's gospel, two or three places, he said, I only say what he tells me to say. I only do what he shows me to do. That's the limit of what Jesus said he could do. In Mark chapter 6, in his own hometown, he could there do no mighty work. He couldn't just heal people. The Bible says in Mark 6, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He was amazed that the people that he came to heal couldn't receive healing because they didn't believe it. They didn't believe in him. Oh, they all wanted to be healed. They all would love to be healed. But God doesn't just heal you because you want to be healed. I'm sure he has for reasons that's known to him and not to us. But for us, he requires faith. In fact, he says in James, the book of James, that if there's no exercise of faith in our life towards God for whatever he has shown us his will is, he said, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. How far does anything go? Anything seems like that goes a long way. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Who won't receive anything from God then? Those who don't exercise what? Say faith. Faith, that's right. I would say it's an important subject. What I've read so far tonight is important. I mean, how can we ever expect anything to happen if we don't believe it's going to happen? How can I expect God to solve this problem in my home if I don't believe him to solve my problems? How can I get myself out of debt if I'm not believing that he will? And following the rules, following the word. I mean, there's a way we have to live that is his will. And when you're in his will, your faith is embracing that will and he'll do it. Well, let me go on. I said, what can you believe? In John 5.30, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. What if I told you tonight it's your Father's will for you to be well? Should you seek it? What if it's your Father's will for you to be at peace? Should you seek it? then why do we frustrate ourselves and get all stressed out when that's not his will? There's something better than that given to us. The devil will give you whatever he can as long as you sign for it. But there's so much in our life, so many struggles, so much consternation, so much difficulty and tribulation and just things falling apart that shouldn't be in our life. It is in the world, but it's not supposed to be in your life. It's supposed to be different for us. Because God has shown us something a whole lot better than all of that. You got to have faith. Faith comes how? If faith comes by hearing, then I need to hear something. Now, I've been hearing what the world says, what the TV, the books, common social input is. I've been hearing that my whole life. But now here's what he says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I cannot believe God, expect God to do something for me unless I know what he wants to do. Teach me your way, Lord, so that I can walk in your truth. So here's what happened. I'm going to give you a formula. When you take the word, we'll use a W. That's the word plus the spirit. It equals what? Don't say faith. It equals knowledge. Now, the K means knowledge. Now, a lot of people think that because their eyes are open to see something in the Bible, they have faith. That's not true. You have knowledge. We start with the word. The Bible calls it a precious word. Hopefully, what he drops in your heart is a hunger for it, or you see a need for it, whereby you're driven to want to get it. That's the only thing in your life that's going to cause God to respond to you is you believing his word. 
All your other emotional things doesn't work. It's the word. Now, he sent the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth. That's the work of the Spirit. He comes down to open eyes, quicken hearts, so that you're listening to something, you're watching something, you're reading something, you're praying about something, and it just suddenly becomes aware to you that, like Martin Luther, you know, the just shall live by faith. We can't earn it. It's not works. We have to believe it. We have to believe it. We can't earn it. So his eyes are opened. He saw a truth. It had been there all forever. A truth had been lodged in the scriptures from the first day it was breathed. But it was never revealed until the time God wanted it revealed. And when he did, he revealed it to a man and spread all over the world. It's here tonight. The just shall live by faith. So, God gives us his word. We've all got a copy of it. God sends his spirit to do one thing, to reveal to us the truth. And we've read many times about what the spirit does. He shall show you things to come. He's called the spirit of, of truth. He's the one in Ephesians 1 who is a spirit of wisdom and revelation that reveals the knowledge of who God is. He shows us things. But what he shows us we call knowledge. Now, there is an academic knowledge which doesn't affect you except helping you pass the test. And then there is another knowledge which stirs you up. A knowledge which quickens something on the inside of you, making you aware that it's important, that it's serious, that you need to hear this. This is a time in your life, one of those moments, one of those divine moments, God is speaking to you. And all he did by speaking to you was make you aware that what you're hearing, what you just heard, is really important. That may be the extent of what the stirring was, but it has eternal consequences. Because the only thing that God watches over in this life, or the only thing that God responds to, is his word. He gave us his word for that purpose. I don't know what people do who don't read the Bible, who don't preach the Bible in churches, who, do, who make no issues. I don't know what so-called Christians do who have little regard for the word of God. They tell you that they do, but in actual life, they don't do much with it. I don't know what they do. My daddy was in church all his life. He didn't hear the word. He wasn't aware of the Holy Spirit. He was a Catholic. At the end of his life, he had nothing from God that enabled him to cope with his situations and his health problems. Nothing. He struggled like a man that had never been to church in his life because, in essence, he probably hadn't. He had been to a meeting somewhere, been in a Catholic church, but he didn't know anything. He wasn't taught anything. Teaching was not necessary. But that's what the Holy Spirit majors on, is teaching. That's what Jesus majored on, was teaching. Turn over to Mark chapter 6 and look at verse 5 and 6. Well, I just quoted those two for you a while ago. Remember, Jesus only did what his father told him to do. Folks, while you're going to Mark chapter 6, how many times do you suppose Jesus walked by the gate called Beautiful going into the temple and saw that beggar there and absolutely did nothing? How many times do you suppose Jesus walked by countless numbers of needy, begging people and did nothing? Didn't he care? Listen, Jesus could do nothing his father did not give him to do. Amen? Pilate said to Jesus before he was crucified, he said, won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have power to do this and do that? Remember what Jesus said to him in John 19? He said, you could have no power over me at all except it was given to you by my father. You couldn't do anything. Remember what we said last week, Sunday, in John chapter 15. He said, without me, what? You can do nothing. All of us are limited. We have grand ideas about what we'd like to see done, but nothing will ever work by faith until what you want done is something that God reveals to you that that's his will. At least the time he wants it done. But anyway, anyway, anyway. So when you have knowledge, it means your eyes are opened. You see something. All right, then how do we get faith? Well, you 
Faith, start with knowledge again. You got to start there. You can't believe what you don't know. Are you with me? You can't believe what you don't know. So knowledge plus, huh, what are we going to plus knowledge with? We've already got the spirit. Knowledge plus what? Oh, I don't know what it is. Knowledge plus my will equals faith. Unless I'm willing, unless I will to do what he said, it's not faith. You can sit in here for 20, how many years have we been here? 30 years, 32 years, 33, 30 bunch. I'm sure everything I know, everything I've ever learned, everything I've ever preached, I've preached it three times. Three or four of them, you didn't know it was the same sermon, but it just had a different title. I preached one last week, and I preached here 32 years ago. Same sermon, last week. Don't y'all remember? <laughs> it is rearranged a little bit, and things, 32 years have been added to this other thing. You take the knowledge of the word and add your will to it. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat to go to the land. Then it becomes faith. It's never faith unless you're willing. You're willing to take a step out there. Unless you're willing to act like what you say you believe is true. People think you're a fool. They think you're crazy. But it's God you deal with. You've got to be willing to act like what the Bible says is true. That's the way faith works. John 7 and verse 17, he says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the truth. Barnes says in his commentary about that, he said, if any man is willing, he shall know. He's got to be willing. I believe Jesus Christ could come on this earth and speak himself, and it would be nothing but pure truth. Every pause of his breath would be another expression of pure truth. But it would affect nobody for good except we believed it. Because if all we do is acquire a lot of knowledge and we can quote the Bible, boy, he can quote the Bible. He can tell you so many historical facts about this book. And tell, it doesn't matter. That's good. Now, don't, don't take me wrong. Any time you spend with God learning his word and learning his word and history, any of that is good. But it does not bring you into his provisions for you until you believe it. I could stand here as a preacher the rest of my life and preach accurate messages, but if I don't believe it, it profiteth me nothing. When I die, I face God who's going to say, why didn't you trust what you preached? Why didn't you live by what you preached? Why weren't you a doer of the word? I won't have an answer then. I'll have one, but it'll be what I don't want him to know, that he already knows, because I didn't want to. It was too hard. It was too difficult. I wanted people to like me. I didn't want people to be disgusted with me because I was so far right. So I kind of, you know, and now I got to face God and give an answer to why I let you down, but let him down the most. Because when people hear that kind of watered down word, they're not willing to trust it. How do they know it'll work? You just told them it might not. It could, but it may not. After all, God could change his mind. He could say no. Well, you're never going to trust something that just sounds like that, are you? Well, no. The church is going to be in a fog. Jesus said, if you believe, if you pray, and what you pray for, you believe, you'll get what you pray for. But if you pray, and you could be a praying machine. Well, he prays all night long. She prays all the time. That's good. But what does she believe? What does he believe? I hear you talking. What do you believe? I hear what you said. What do you believe? Do you believe what you said? Do you believe what you heard? Because that's the way this whole thing has to work. You have to believe that it works. Now, turn to the 91st Psalm. We're looking at two places tonight before we go home. And one's the 91st Psalm, the other is Acts chapter 3. But let's go to 91st Psalm first of all. I believe this is how you'll find the foundation of faith expressed where it comes from, why it works, and the dimension of how it works. That is, all the things that are involved in what it does. For example, in verse 9, he begins by saying, Because you have made the Lord, 
And he goes on to say, your habitation. Now, in that 91st Psalm, in verse 9, he said, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. Do you see the word, because you made? See, nobody can make that decision for you. You can hear it. You can have this explained to you and understand it. But it won't benefit you until you trust it and you believe it. And he said, this is what a guy does. He said, now, because you have made the Lord, even the Most High, your habitation. Because you've done it, look at the next three verses. Because you have done that as a consequence of doing that, Verse 10, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Well, that's the way it ought to be. I want it that way in my family. Wouldn't you? Because you made a choice. Because you decided, based on something, based on something in you that you got, something that you heard from God, based on that, you chose to make God your habitation. It's an abiding place. The realm of where you want to exist. And he says, because of that, there shall no evil befall you. Neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge concerning you to keep you in all your ways. Or think of it like this, that concerning you, because you're willing to make God your habitation. Now that concerning you, God will give charge to his angels to watch after you and to keep you in all your ways while you're driving down the road, while you're going shopping, working wherever you are during the storms. The angels of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. Psalm 34. All right, go on. Verse 12. This is what else that they do for you and your children. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. You see, all state is not the good hands group. Now, right here it says these angels have hands too. That is, they have, there's something protective and secure about what God sends angels to do for those who are willing to make God their habitation. And in verse 13, the young lion and the adder thou shalt trample under your feet. In other words, the words in the Bible for scorpions, asp, cobras, snakes, serpents are all pictures of the enemy, the devil and his crowd. When the Bible says in Mark 16, these signs shall follow those who believe they shall take up serpents. It's like going back to Luke 10 or maybe back to Mark 6 where it says, and he sent his men out and he gave them power over serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. Well, they weren't out looking for snakes and scorpions, but those are words that identified what the enemy is like, the sting of death. They said, you have power over them. Do we or not? You know what? You wouldn't know that by listening to a lot of conversations of Christian people. You would think no such thing exists. Because, again, down through the years, the word's been watered down or it's not working and people talk and yak and talk each other out of their faith. The next thing you know, well, I don't know, you know, God could. I read it. Yeah, I read it too, but it doesn't look like to me. It's, you know, and, and they start believing like that. Then life becomes very dull. Church becomes a difficult thing. You're hearing the right thing, but why doesn't it work? Well, it could be because what's lodged in your heart is not absolute certainty that what God said he will do. It's just the knowledge that God could or that God has. I know that. But I'm not willing to trust this because I'm not sure it'll work for me. Look how many tried and it didn't work. I don't want to be one of them. You know why you get to this place where you can make God your habitation? Look at verse 1 and 2. He that dwelleth. He that dwelleth in the secret place. Of the Most High, Elyon. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High, 
he shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Does your Bible say that or something near that? The secret place, it's up to you, he that dwells there. God won't make you dwell there. He'll give you the, the invitation, but it doesn't mean you'll come. But if you're willing, and you're willing to come, listen to it again. He said, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And the effect of that is relationship. It's relationship. The word dwell is like the word abiding. It's where something is cultivated in your life that brings forth something. I would say bearing fruit under God, which you'll see as the way I live. This time in the secret place of the Most High, the place where we choose the time to dwell and to fellowship and to study and to pray and to talk and to think and meditate, it's all about a relationship with God. I said it Sunday. I'll just repeat a little bit of it again. I have a need in my life, whether I'm 24 or 74, I have a need in my life to spend time with God. I never have gotten to the place where that's no longer a need. In fact, as the end comes and things are intensifying and more and more, there seems to be so many unsolvable social solutions. I need I need very much to hear from the Lord about what's the right thing for me to do or what to prepare for. Now, you can teach me all you want to, but what I'm talking about comes from fellowship, comes from God himself. If I don't draw an eye to God, then how am I ever going to know these things? Because the Bible said, he that dwells in the secret place, he that abides with the Lord. He is the one who is going to know what it is that God wants him to do and what God wants him to say. It's a relationship. There's a kind of security and certainty that comes out of it. You're no longer for sale. People can't buy you anymore. You're not afraid of people and afraid of circumstances and afraid of stuff anymore. You found something in God that supersedes all the things that troubles and rules the world. You've been lifted out of it. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things passed away. Everything is new. Now, here's what happens. Verse 3, surely, surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. That's just the works of the devil. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust his truth. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. That's what you'll depend on and what will cover you. Verse 5, thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day. And they do. Nor for the pestilence, the ailments and the sicknesses that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday and its coming. The world is talking about very uneasily now. The whole world is realizing that the world, the whole world's on shaky ground because of the ability of crazy people to let go with a lot of nuclear power. Maybe not the way it's going to be yet, but it's coming. And just think, all it takes is one deranged person, push a button, and who knows what. And you young people, in your generation especially. In your generation. I pray I'm here when Jesus comes and we all get out of here before the rockets start flying. But you can be sure that what is coming on this world, the world has never seen the likes of before. And if there's ever a realization that you need to get out of here and escape all these things that are coming, now's a good time to realize that. You know, for me, I want to escape all this stuff. I don't want to be here. I spent a weekend in a church once with a fellow who used to be one of the uh, manifested sons. They don't believe in the rapture, and they believe in causing the tribulation. He said, you escapists, y'all can go, but he said, I'm going to stay here and cause it. I said, you don't even want to be here when all this is going on. You don't want to be on this earth when this world is turned upside down and it reels to and fro like a drunk man. You don't want to be here. Where there's no order of anything anywhere. 
The best designed weapons in the world can stop nothing. The only thing that rules the destruction of the whole globe is God himself, who will not let it be any worse than what he said it's going to be. And the only thing that will stop it is when Jesus comes back to this earth with his saints. And when he comes back, you'll subdue the enemy, set up his kingdom, and we'll reign and rule with him. If you come back with him, you'll reign and rule with him for a thousand years. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But it's the Bible. It is in there. But he says he dwells in the secret place. He'll be blessed. He'll not be afraid. Nothing of the pestilence, diseases that are running around the world. In verse 7, listen to this. When trouble comes, a thousand may fall at your side. And 10,000 at your right hand. So it does mean that you might be, see some of this happening. But it shall not come what? Not come near you. Why? Because he gives his angels charge concerning you. Doesn't he? And they, he said, they shall keep you in all their way. Verse 8, only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked. Then that verse again, because you have made the Lord, even the most high, who is your refuge, your habitation. Then he begins to tell you how God will again protect you and keep you from all the stuff that the world is troubled about and afraid of, especially diseases and health and cost and all of that. He said, I will deliver you from it. Let me read it again. Verse 10, there shall no evil befall you. There shall no plague come near your dwelling. You look in the Hebrew dictionary of what the word plague is. It's a loathsome Mostly an incurable disease and illness. There's these things that run all over the world. But notice he said, it shall not come near you. Who's he talking to? Obviously, this is only for the church, but not everybody in the church believes this. So who's he talking to? He that what? He that dwells. He that makes. He that responds. He that does. He that abides. He that fellowship with God, who is sure and certain in his heart. That's who this is going to work for. It's not going to work for everybody, but it's going to work. I don't like to think that when Jesus comes, all of your testimony here will be that folks will say, how is it that all of this is working for you? Or as one guy said to us years ago, he said, why is the fact that my child is twice as big as your children? Looks twice as healthy. Mine's always sick and yours are never sick. And of course, what are you going to say? Well, because I just said, well, I, you know, I can't answer for you. I, we just trust the Lord. Well, I do too. Well, I, I'm, I'm out. I don't know what to tell you. I just know that God is faithful. What he said, he said. And, and the question is, am I willing to believe this? If I'm willing to believe this, am I willing to act like this is true? Because the consequence of me acting like the word of God is true or believe the consequence is all of what I just said tonight. God will do all of these things for you. Take care of you. Keep you safe. Keep you sound. Deliver you from fear. Bless you when you go out. Bless you when you come in. Whatever you put your hands to, you'll cause it to prosper. Isn't that good? Turn to Acts 3. I think Jesus himself said, if you abide... In me, I'm sure it's back in John 15 again. I think Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, what did he say? You shall ask what you will and it shall be done. The issue is whether or not you're willing to do, I'm willing, whether or not we're willing to do what he said. He's going to show us his way. He's going to teach us. He's going to make sure you get the message, all of us. He's going to be sure that you're going to hear it. It's going to be clear. No questions asked. You've got no more questions, and you certainly have no more excuses because your heart, your conscience will bear witness to the fact that, yes, that's right. God said that. Make an excuse. Your heart will say, no, that ain't what he said. Yeah, but nobody said, no, I don't care who is and who does that. That's not what he said. Your conscience will do that. The question is, are we willing Are we wanting to live like what we hear is true? Because if I am, then I've got a lot 
to expect to happen. To see the consequences of my faith is, is I'm going to be blessed. Amen. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, I hope you all know this verse. When Peter and John went up together in the temple to pray at the hour of prayer, which is 3 in the afternoon, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Now let's see, let's stop right there. Why would they lay a man at a, at, at a gate where people are going to church? Put it that way. Because if anybody is apt to give and have compassion on you, it would be the church crowd. Amen? Amen. All a crook has to do is cry, and he's got our wallet. <laughs> I don't regret that. I'm sure I've been taken advantage of before, but my heart was right when I gave. But if the chances are, here's a man who could never walk. Now you think of him, this man's never walked. He was born like this, lame from his birth. And he had somebody that carried him to the gate and laid him down. He couldn't work, couldn't do anything, but lay still and hope people had mercy on him. I don't know if he had a little cup or just had a little something laid there and you put a shekel down there or whatever they gave and that's all he had. Now, that's all he had. And the only people he could really expect to even care about his situation was church crowd. I've used church crowd here. Temple people. So they laid him there because this was his best shot in the whole city of Jerusalem. This was his best shot. There by the gate called Beautiful, which is the, the eastern gate that faces the Mount of Olives. It was a very ornate gate, they said, when they were released from captivity, the the ruler there asked them to put on there something that honored him on that gate. And they were still slaves, so they did all of that. And so it was called the gate called Beautiful. But as I'm understanding in the commentaries, it opened up towards the Mount of Olives. Interesting place to go look. We walk right over by it when you walk through all those grave sites. All those sheiks and alibabas are all buried over there right up against the wall because they think that Jesus would never come back over graves. So they just want to attempt maybe to keep him from coming back through that gate when he comes back. But I doubt if any grave there will keep him from coming back through that gate. I don't think Jesus has a whole lot to do with Islam. In fact, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Except using it in the last days as a form of judgment. Anyway, anyway, he said here that they put him down there to beg. And it said, verse 5, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked him alms. Help, help, whatever they would say. And Peter, fasting his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. Look at me. Maybe that's the way they said it. Look at me. Maybe he raised his head up. He looked at him and says he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now let me ask you a question. Now what did he have? Didn't Peter say, I don't have silver and gold to give you, but what I have, I'm going to give you. Now, let me ask you a question again. The same question. What did he have? Now, did he have something we can't have? Don't answer out loud or don't answer too fast. Did Peter have something we don't have? Some commentators and some modern churches will tell you that Peter had apostolic power. He had apostolic authority, which has passed away because all the apostles are gone. And so there's no such power now on the earth. The gifts of the spirit have all ceased and miracles and signs and wonders have also ceased because that was done entirely by apostles. Well, Peter, we know, was an apostle. And he said here, such as I have, give I thee. My eyes fell on that verse this week. And I asked myself the question, 
what did Peter have that we don't have? Or did he have something we can also have? What he did, could we do? What's the difference? What is it that he could do that we cannot do? Is it available to us, whatever he had? Let me ask you, is it? What did he have? He was just a fisherman. He had a tough trade, but he was a tough man, no doubt. And he just happened to follow Jesus around. He got in more trouble than any of them did. But he was walking to the temple to pray, and there's that man. They had seen him before, I'm sure. He said, look at me. He said, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Maybe it's the name of Jesus. Maybe it was the understanding of the power that was in the name of Jesus. Can we have that? Or was that just apostolic? Can we use the name of Jesus today? Or was that only something that the apostles could do in getting the church started? And it was needed then, but we don't need it now. Can we use the name of Jesus? Can we make a command in the name of Jesus? Well, he did. I asked myself the question, what did Peter have that we don't have? I've never seen anybody speak a command like that and raise up somebody that had been crippled all of his life and suddenly his strength comes into his body. He could actually leap and walk. I've never seen that happen in my life. Never heard of it happening except in the Bible. Maybe we don't have what Peter had. He said, such as I have, give I unto thee. What did he have? What do you suppose was given to him that we don't have? Well, let me go on. He said in verse 6, silver and gold have I none, but since I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And then he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So Peter had to act his faith, didn't he? How about the man on the ground? Did he have any need for faith? Don't talk out loud. Did the man on the ground who was lame, did he need any faith? Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. What's he ever heard? Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. Then he reached down and grabbed him by the hand. He didn't say, I said to get up. He just reached down and grabbed him by the right hand and pulled him up. And when he got him up, bam, everything was there. So everybody came rushing. Boy, they saw that happen. Verse 8, he was leaping, jumping up and down and walking around. And when all the people in verse 9 saw him doing that and praising God, they knew that this was the man that had been begging alms all that time. How can he be made whole? And the lame man, verse 11, which was healed, held Peter and John not to hold himself up. He just didn't want to let go of them. He held Peter and John, and all the people ran together unto them in the porch that was called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he said, we're just apostles. We're just apostles. Y'all need to follow us. We've got it. You know what he said? Let me tell you what he said. This is for our sake tonight. He said, verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified through this healing, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go but you deny the Holy One and so forth. In verse 16, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. What was the major factor here? Faith, wasn't it? Would you say that the faith that God gave, it's a gift of grace. You can't believe anything that God wants you to believe unless God inspires you to believe it. That's grace. That's a gift. The expression of that gift, well, how far you want to go? Peter said, stand up, 
in the name of Jesus. Peter certainly had faith in the name of Jesus. That's what he had. He said, such as I have, I give to you. You can have that. We can have the same thing, folks. There's no difference. The name of Jesus, the power that is in the name of Jesus. Luke 10, the power that is in the name of Jesus is what Peter had. Look at verse 10. I'll show you where he got it. Luke chapter 10. All that time he spent with Jesus, he didn't forget. Luke 10 verse 19. Behold, I give you power. Is he talking to the apostles? Verse 17 says the 70. Does it say 70? Look back at Luke chapter 9, verse 1. He said that to the same thing to his 12 apostles. Then there were 70 other men. He gave them the same power. Same thing he gives to us. In verse 19, he said, Behold, I give you power, dunamis, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing, like the 91st Psalm, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Why has this been left out of a New Testament church in this age? Who believes that? Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Who believes it? Where is this church that believes this? Where is the people that believe this? Jesus said, behold, hey, I'm talking. I give you authority, power, in this case, power, to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Everything you've been scared of your whole life, everything you've cowered before your whole life, everything you've been threatened by and that ruled you with fear your whole life, I give you power over it. You don't have to be afraid anymore. So he said, as I said two or three weeks ago, you know, I think a lot of people that want to go around the world need to find out what kind of power you got before you go around the world. Because sometimes you've got to deal with your enemy as you deal with the devil. A man told a vision one time of the last days. Was being tied to a firing squad, being tied to a pole. Getting ready to put the sack on his head. I don't know why they put that thing on your head. But he was being tied to a post. So he could be shot and killed. And the persecutors said to him as some foreign country whatever. He said, do you have anything to say before you die? And he said, I do. And he said, speak. And he said, your guns will not fire in the name of Jesus. Now, who's ever heard such a thing? That's like the lion. Then you can't get out of this. Well, he said, your guns won't fire in the name of Jesus. Click, 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 click. How many clicking guns there were? And then suddenly his rope fell down. He disappeared. He was transported to another part of the world into a meeting where people were, and he began sharing the gospel. I don't know about that. There's a lot of things we don't know about. But God is able to do things beyond your imagination. There's just not that many people who believe it. We're willing to submit to every crisis. We submit to the problem. We submit to the, the forecast, whatever the news people say, whatever the current talk is. We just submit to it. Oh, yeah, it's going to be, oh, boy. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, there's times you do flee to another city. Didn't Jesus say that? When they persecute you here, flee to another. So there's times you don't just say, you won't persecute me in Jesus' name because you might get shot. It's so important to know the will of the Lord, to be in touch, to have that fellowshipping realism, that awareness. But anyway, he said to these apostles, he said, you go and you heal the sick and you raise the dead. You declare my name. Why is his name? Because there's no other name in Acts 4.12. There's no other name given among men whereby a man can be saved in the name of Jesus. Philippians 2.12 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. For God has given him a name that is above every name. In the Old Testament, you know, he began by, There are no other gods. I'm he. Don't make any images of me, of heaven. 
And he said, thirdly, don't take my name in vain. That's the first three commandments. And the third one had to do with his name, because his name is power. His name is sacred, the name of Jesus. And the devil knows that if when a man believes that you believe what the name of Jesus is all about, he knows he has to obey you. Because Jesus said, these signs shall follow those who believe. In Mark 16, it says, in my name. That's our authority. That's what Peter had. He said, I have a name. He taught me. I listened to him. We've sat there on the same hillside, and what he said registered to me. Like Jesus said, now you're clean. This word has found a lodging place in your heart, and everything that would disagree with it is gone because you're plugged in now. You'll never quit and fall away. You are clean. And he said, that I got that. He said, what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus. You rise and walk. I know it has to work. So he grabbed him by the hand and yanked him up and made sure he cooperated. And he was healed. I wonder how many times something like that, maybe in a lesser, you know, that's pretty uppity. How many times could we have done something like that? I wonder how many times we could have done that. How many times could we have told an alcoholic You'll never drink another drop of alcohol in your life. I rebuke that spirit in Jesus' name. Well, you know, we think, well, I, yeah, but I remember a lady came forward in a meeting up in Indianapolis. This is in her early 70s when I had this meeting. She came forward, a healing line. And I made a point to ask her, what are you here for? People sometimes ask things that you can't agree with. One lady wanted me to agree with her that Oral Roberts would start a school in Indianapolis. And I said, well, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, you preach faith, don't you? Okay, next. I said, why are you here? And she said, I got these terrible headaches. And I remember uh, just one of those times. I laid hands on her and I said, I not only rebuke this headache and I command to go, but they shall never come back. You'll have no more of these headaches in Jesus' name. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do next week if she's not here because she's got a rag on her head and she can't see? I thought, well, I'm going to have to believe that she will. I think she showed up like two or three months later at one of those December seminars up there. She came back and said, you remember me? Well, no. She said, I'm the lady you prayed for that had the headaches. She said, I had them all my life. I haven't had one since. That's not anything that, you know, any... The same power that heals anybody is the power that we all have in the church it's something from Jesus Christ that's how God is glorified it all comes through the name of Jesus and you'll find that everybody that has been effective proclaiming the gospel or seeing people healed and set free they all use the name of Jesus Jesus said in John 14 and John 16 if you ask anything in my name I'll do it in my name a name that society can't stand to hear. You can mention Jesus in any, most any conversation in the world, and it just irritates everybody because the name doesn't belong to them. It belongs to us. They have no right to that name, and they don't use it. But it belongs to us. It's the one that he gave to us to use. If you go to John 15 again, verse 16, one more verse. You have not chosen me. But I have chosen, you remember that, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain and. Remember what else he said? And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. How do you connect all that together? Well, it's interesting. It's not that complicated, but I do believe that everybody that becomes aware of God's direction for his life, and you're willing to take a step of faith and walk that way, you're going to need his assistance and his power for the rest of your life because fruit will be borne by him, but you'll be tempted to give up, and the devil's going to try his best to stop you. You're a danger to the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus said, and just remember, like I said in John 14 and John 16, I said in John 15, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it for you. You're not going to give up on this trip. I'm not going to send you out somewhere that you're going to fail. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given me. Remember that? All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He says, as the Father has sent me, 
So send I you, go, and the works that I did, you do also. Didn't he say that? Of course he did. So let's don't doubt it. Let's ponder it, take it to heart and say, you know, I want to live on that level. I want those things to be my motivation and the guide in my life. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts that we may have your word dwell there. Like the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. For you said, Lord, he that knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, it's sin. Or you said, whatsoever is in the faith is sin. Lord, help us to be faithful and not look back, but look ahead. Father, I don't know what you know, but I know there are needs in this room tonight. There are some serious needs in this room amongst those that are present. And I also know that every need that they have, you've already made a provision for it in your word. Now teach us to believe that to hold fast to what you've said. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.